If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf and welcome to my podcast, Cleaning Up the Mental Mess, a podcast dedicated to helping you take back control of your mind, mood and mental health. In this episode, I interview neuroscientist and one of the top peak performance coaches, Dr. Andrew Hill, on how to use neurofeedback to help improve mental and physical health issues, learning issues like ADD and other major issues like PTSD. Dr. Hill also shares on how neurofeedback and brain mapping can help with substance abuse and how it's more effective than medication. We also discuss how to find a clinic that offers neurofeedback and QEEG brain mapping. Want more practical and simple mental health tips? You can now pre-order my book, 101 Ways to Be Less Stressed. This book is packed with simple self-care strategies to help boost your mind, mood and mental health. Right now, when you pre-order, you can get 20% off. This book is a great gift for holidays and birthdays, or simply just for yourself. Just go to drleaf.com for more details and to order. The link will also be in the show notes. If you enjoy my podcast and want to know how you can help me continue making them possible, please consider subscribing wherever you listen and leaving a five-star review. And please continue sharing this podcast with friends, family, and on social media. And now, on to today's podcast. Dr. Andrew Hill, what an honor and privilege to have you in the studio today and to talk to you about the incredible work that you do. I'm absolutely thrilled to meet you, see you face to face after reading about you and listening to you. I think what you do is absolutely outstanding and it so lines up with the philosophy I have and the work I do too. So I'm just thrilled. I'm thrilled and honored to hear from you today. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Leaf. Nice to be here. That's going to be amazing. It's going to be so interesting. Okay, so tell us, I know that the listeners have heard your bio, but tell us a bit more about yourself that's not in your bio. And, you know, why do you do what you do? What keeps you motivated? Yeah, I mean, of course, I work in this area. It's sort of mental health. It's sort of peak performance. It's sort of wellness. It really crosses a lot of boundaries because I work on people's brains, essentially, or help them work on their brains more accurately. And most of us have a brain. And most of us have things we'd like to optimize in those brains. And so I started off in the field working in clinical environments, you know, with brain injury people and kids with major developmental disabilities and psychiatric inpatient and alcohol, really acute stuff. But over the past, you know, 20, 30 years, I've really refined my perspective on wellness to being about these sort of core regulatory resources that all humans do. I mean, you understand this deeply from a, you know, there, there, there's certain conserved resources across brains, regulation of sleep, regulation of stress, of, 
blood sugar, of learning, of all these different basic things. And often these things can get out of range a little bit and cause really dramatic suffering in our lives. And so when I started to see that the main technique I use for interventions is called neurofeedback or biofeedback in the brain. And I started to see that this could make dramatic impact. I, I, I worked, one of the first jobs I had in the neurofeedback field was in an autism center in Providence, Rhode Island called the Neurodevelopment Center. And I had been working in mental health for years and with kids for years before that. And then I got a job at the Neurodevelopment Center, which was mostly autism and some ADHD, and started seeing symptoms lift, left and right. And was seeing ADHD go away and autism symptoms lift, sensory integration, eye contact. I was quite shocked at how rapidly, you know, within weeks and months, these children were getting changes to show up. And that sort of flew in the face of what I understood to be true mm -hmm. at that time. And this was the early 90s. And so I decided to go back to school and figure out what the heck this neurofeedback stuff does. Because at that time, you know, there was three or four big schools of thought in the neurofeedback world. And they were all very vitriolic, you know, fighting each other and really quite, you know, not reconcilable. And the theories, the ideas about what this stuff was, this neurofeedback technique and process, the ideas were mutually exclusive. They, they were in conflict. And there wasn't really the ability to sort of understand the process of neurofeedback by following the sort of processes that every individual school of neurofeedback thought they were doing. They weren't reconcilable. And so I joked that what we had there was a, a blind man and elephant situation. You know, we all had a piece of the truth and thought we were describing something mm -hmm. real. The field isn't especially more coherent now. It's maybe more fractured, but mm -hmm. we do understand some of the deepest things involved with the process of brain training now in a way we did not, you know, 20, 25 years ago. So for me, the reason I do what I do, not really as a therapist, I'm not a psychologist at all, I'm mostly just a you know, neuroscientist. And then I work as an entrepreneur. So I have companies that are essentially brain gyms and I have a help found a nootropic company. All of this is focused around giving people agency over their own brains. Because, you know, if you struggle with anxiety or ADHD or trauma or a sleep issue, those are, a, that can be a lot of suffering. But those things are incredibly changeable in my experience. You can, you can get rid of ADHD in most people. You can get control healthy anxiety in most people rapidly in an order of weeks and months, you know, a couple of months in, in my centers, we typically make more than a standard deviation of change in about a month and a half of neurofeedback. So ADHD, people come in a few standard deviations off the middle of the bell curve, you know, two or three on the wrong side of the bell curve. And they do, you know, 40, 50 sessions of neurofeedback in four months. And they end up on the same side to the right of the bell mm -hmm. curve, you know, massive changes. So I saw this happen and was shocked having people do inpatient and medication things. And why is every kid in the world on Adderall and mm. what's going on here? And then I hung around after hours at the, at the clinic I worked at and trained my own brain. And in about five or six weeks, got rid of my own fairly profound ADHD. I was like 27 or something at the time. And seeing what could be done in the field, experiencing what could be done, you know, tra transforming myself really lit the fire to go a, figure out what the heck this stuff was, but B, try to be sort of an evangelist for taking control of your brain health. You know, this is not rocket surgery, as, as the joke goes. This is, yeah. you know, it's just exercising brainwaves. Yes. And it's rather magical, but it has a great deal of efficacy, more than almost any medication we use. For the things that it works for, it works better than medications do. Like in the literature for seizure, 
the average amount of reduction of seizure is 50%. I've never seen a result as poor as 50%, by the way, personally. I've never seen one that bad. It's a very robust effect in seizure. In fact, the process of neurofeedback was discovered the way it's done now in 1967 because it reduced seizures in animals. It was a mistaken sort of discovery. So just discovering, just seeing how much agency was available that most people weren't able to get, you know, weren't able to take, to find access to. I mean, that was in the early 90s. The field's been around since the late 60s. Here we are in 2020. And I'd be surprised if there's 10, 12, 15,000 practitioners in the whole world right now. I mean, there's probably 10,000 chiropractors in California, if I had to guess. Yeah. You know, and there, there are a lot of people doing this now who aren't clinicians and the, the sort of consumer world of neurofeedback is increasing access, but it's still a very niche area. And so I've made it my job to sort of break down the neurofeedback barriers. So we take it out of the therapy environment, out of the medical environment. It's not done to you. You know, I'm not a therapist and my offices aren't full of therapists. They're full of personal trainers and brain coaches. So you come in, we teach you to read your own brain maps. We don't tell you what it means. We teach you to sort of go after different goals in the neurofeedback and see what shows up and then refine your pursuit of those goals. Just like an athlete in the gym works with their personal trainer to identify goals, assess their fitness, operationalize, reassess, you know, wash and repeat. That's what we do. So we map your brain at the beginning with a QEEG. We also measure your attention. And every 20 sessions or so, we reassess your performance and we do neurofeedback for about half an hour, three times a week, and just gradually chase those goals of attention, sleep, stress, mood, et cetera. So but for me, just to sort of circle back around to your question, it's, it's really about giving people a little more control over the things that were invisible, were blind, were, you know, mysterious 20, 30 years ago. You know, everything that you're saying, I'm nodding my head and I'm jumping on the inside. I look calm, but actually I'm very excited because the experiences that you talk about are so parallel to what I experienced as well. Back in the 80s, I remember telling my neuroscience professors, you know, our mind can change our brain. You know, we're not because we were told your brain can't change. And just I work with traumatic brain injury and ADHD and autism and dementia, everything, all the ADHD, all the spectrum you work with in the same sort of environments across. And I remember saying that if we if we direct our mind, I've, I've gone more down the mind route, how we can, so that autonomy of how you can control your thoughts, not so much cognitive behavior therapy, but much more direct control of mind, mind-brain change. And I, I propose with my, my TBI patients that you could change your mind, would change your brain, change behavior, etc. And I remember being told, I even did a TED talk on this, that it was a ridiculous question back in the 80s, because basically, you know, as you know, back in the 80s and early, it was only mid-90s where we saw neuroplasticity being accepted. And I did some of that research there. So just paralleling your experience and to see the changes in people, as you say, anxiety can. My, my recent clinical trials, I showed a drop in anxiety by 81%. We also used QEEG, but we didn't use neurofeedback. We used the QEEG to do our, as, as proof, as measurement. And we did all the psychological tools and the, you know, the physio neurophysiology. But it, it goes parallel with what you're saying, that we can manage anxiety. We can manage depression. We can get control ADHD. And to use tools, I love neurofeedback. It's I was actually approached by a neurologist who was using neurofeedback, who'd been using it, who then started using my programs. And he said, let's do research together. And so that's where we combined it. But it's, it's what you're saying is so true. I just want the listeners and the viewers to understand that this is very valid. We've been sold a narrative that once that brain damage, that's it. 
wants mental health issues, you're broken for life. But that's not the narrative. I mean, you're hearing Dr. Andrew Hills also lectured UCLA, who's a neuroscientist for years, credible bio, incredible experience, who has shown that this using a different technique to me, but you've shown the same kind of thing that we can manage and change these things. So I want to thank you for your work. I mean, it's outstanding and exciting. <laughs> yeah, we, we sort of joke now at Peak Brain that our motto is shift happens, get yours. Love that. I agree with you. That's something I say to people, whether you like it or not, your brain is changing every moment of every day. You may as well control it. Otherwise, it's going to be changing in the wrong way. So if it changes, direct the change. You know, and that's what you're teaching with neurofeedback. As a parent, I know how hard it can be trying to make sure your children are healthy and getting the nutrients and vitamins they need, especially with so many bad products out there that can do more harm than good. So I have the solution for you. Higher health. Higher is the pediatrician-approved, super-powered, chewable vitamin created by two dads tired of children's vitamins that cause more problems than they solve. Higher is designed for kids of all ages and sent straight to your door in a package families love so parents can have one less thing to worry about. While most children's vitamins are filled with 5 grams of sugar and can cause a variety of health issues, Higher is made with zero sugar and zero gummy junk. Yet it tastes great and is perfect for picky eaters. We've worked out an exclusive offer with Higher Health for their best-selling children's vitamin. This is just for cleaning up the mental mess podcast listeners. Receive 50% off your first order. To claim this, you must go to higherhealth.com forward slash Dr. Leaf or enter the code Dr. Leaf at checkout. That's H-I-Y-A-H-E-A-L-T-H dot com slash Dr. Leaf and get your kids the full body nourishment they need to grow into healthy adults. Full discount applied at checkout. The link and offer details will also be in the show notes. Let's start at the beginning. Let's talk about neurofeedback, what it is in a bit more detail and explain how it works. But I don't know if you want to start with the QEEG. My listeners and viewers, most of them are quite familiar, but I think we should treat it as though no one knows anything and start from the absolute basics and so that people can understand the, the concept and how it can benefit them. I'm sure. So brain mapping or quantitative EEG, QEEG, and the Q here means generally that we're comparing someone's brainwaves to a reference database, you know? So I have a database that I use called NeuroGuy, which has a few thousand cases in it, age two through age, you know, 102 or something ridiculous. And to, 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 to do an assessment, we would put a cap on your head, we would squirt it full of gel, and have you sit still for 10 minutes or so, eyes closed, and 10 minutes or so, eyes open. And we would take the resting baselines. Those things are relatively stable year after year, high-level resting baselines, the averages of your brainwaves, and compare you to a database and see how unusual you are compared to other people who are the same age, because age is the only thing that really affects EEG dramatically across the years. And out of that, we would get a set of ways in which you're different, not necessarily what's a problem, but ways in which you're unusual. And then brain mapping is not a diagnostic. We can't say, oh, this is true. We can say, oh, this is unusual. And for some people, this could mean X. And if you say, oh, that actually sounds like me, then we would believe X. But if you're like, well, okay, never mind. That's not a valid hypothesis. So again, we generate ideas based on what's unusual in you. I look for things that are a couple of standard deviations out of range. And human brains are built with actually functional circuits for certain things. So anything that's got a circuit, you can see the particular pinch or bottleneck or cramp, if you will, as a really obvious thing in a brain map. You can't see other things that are high-level human experiences, like depression can show up in a brain map, but it's hard to spot 
it's not a very likely, it's not a very valid marker. It can show up a lot as a false marker. You can be depressed without the marker really easily. It's, it's a high level kind of diffuse, you know, thing, but concretely there's a, a circuit in the front of the brain called the anterior cingulate. There's one in the back called the posterior cingulate. Those are involved with switching our attention around. So the intersection of anxiety and attention. So if the anterior cingulate gets a little bit stuck, cramped, it sort of spins the switching system in circles and we end up with perseveration. So if I looked at your brain, eyes closed and saw a big red blob, you know, large amounts of beta waves in the front, I would say, oh, for some people, this can mean your anterior cingulate's overactive or more active than is typical. And that is both the OCD and the CEO marker, the highly focused brain. So you might have a touch of like obsessions internally. Maybe you bite your nails, maybe songs that suck in your head. You have a tick or something, full blown OCD. I can't tell. Or maybe none of it's a problem and you're just able to like latch onto things like you're, you know, a high level hyper-focused individual and it works for you just fine. So that's the anterior cingulate. The posterior cingulate is more of an evaluation mode. So if that stays lit up, we would expect people are sort of in a, in a rumination, a worry mode. So these two things together show up in the literature quite often in things like PTSD, for instance, or ADHD is a high amount of slow brain waves that maintain when you open your eyes. We should shut down the slow brain waves mm-hmm. when you open your eyes and then let them come up when you close your eyes. But if you open your eyes and you're making lots of theta, the brakes are off and you're squirrel. And if you make lots of alpha, then there's air and it's hard to pop the car into gear. It wants to stay in neutral. So that's the ADHD versus ADD kind of phenomena. Those markers in the brain maps used to be very, very valid in children. Like you could take a 17 year old 20 years ago and do a brain map on him and predict with 94% accuracy if they were ADHD or not. In the past 20 years, there's been that, that those theta beta ratio studies that looked at ADHD have been replicated. And every time they're replicated, they get worse and worse throughout the past 20 years. What's happening is the amount of sleep deprivation in the child and young adult population is it's growing increased. over those past 20 years. So the same marker of increased slow brain waves mm, has changed the ability to tell if someone's got ADHD. So a lot of time I can't tell now if it's ADHD, I can just tell that you're spacey and foggy and impulsive and distractible. So anyways, the brain mapping, the QEEG is the first thing we do. And we teach people to read it. We don't really give you a report and say, here's what's true, but we go over the data with you and spend some time educating. And then Peak Brain has this strange policy of never charging for another brain map. So we do one time at the beginning and they're free repeats for life. And people come back every six months or a year and check on their brains. If you're doing neurofeedback, we map your brain every 20 sessions or so. And we watch, you know, really linear change often, almost a full standard deviation every 20 sessions. But if you're not mapping your brain, maybe you're getting older or maybe you're doing other interventions, you know, sauna, hyperbaric, nootropics, meditation, you know, diet, whatever else you're doing. Your brain will change over the years or maybe, God forbid, you got a concussion or you have something else going on. So we provide this, this, again, this agency, this perspective into what's happening up here and teach you to use the information. So at the end of a half an hour call going over your brain, you kind of know if your, you know, anterior cingulate staying lit up when, when you're trying to relax, which means you're a little bit stuck in your head. Maybe you discover that your alpha waves are running slower than average. Ah, that's speed of processing. And therefore, my prediction would be you have like a hitch on your word finding or delayed recall for information. People often get scared and think it's a memory issue, but it rarely is. It's almost always speed access. So 
the point is we're all unique and there may be 10 or 15 interesting quirks, you know, that you care about that are unique to you. And this is why I approach it as fitness and education, not medicine or psychology, because only you can know for sure if the guess is about what could be true from a brain map or valid. Only you know which are important you to work on. So Peak Brain, my company, takes this perspective of doing work on your brain and flips it into a more you know, athletic versus psychological perspective. So it's the person working on their performance with their brain coach, not having you know, a therapist fix them. So it's the mm-hmm. agency, is the, the, the locus of control is internal. And I find that just showing someone their brain, just showing them their brain injury, their ADHD, their PTSD, their alcoholism that makes them, they can't fall asleep. Look, it's real. Oh, there's this, there's this removement, a uh, uh, dissolving of stigma that seems to happen when they realize, oh, it's real. And they don't feel, I mean, if I had an x-ray of your shoulder and you had a broken shoulder, you probably wouldn't feel guilty about not being able to use your shoulder properly. But if you have a broken stress response or attention management, you feel guilty for being traumatized or being ADHD because we don't see those things as, as problems that are visible. There's behavior, you know? And so if I can show someone their brain, you often sort of have this freeing experience of just going, oh yeah, there, there I am. Okay, great. And then since we provide maps for free, over the years, you can take more and more control and learn about yourself. So it's this first thing of giving people the perspective of the brain map. We also do an attention test. We use the IVA, actually IVA 2, just a simple attention test. We flash a number on the screen and make people click a mouse button for some of the numbers. But it's really boring. So we look for how they space out and how they get impulsive. And we tease apart the performance. And so we look at your performance and your brain as a set of metrics and then repeat that every 20 sessions or so of neurofeedback. And then for the, for the training, for the neurofeedback, it's three times a week for half an hour. So we have a little box like this that we, we plug some wires into, usually just a couple of ear clips and you know, one or two on top of your head. And you don't need to have a haircut like mine. You can have a full <laughs> head of hair. In fact, the thicker your hair is, the better your EEG is. It's uh-huh. really hard to get an EEG off my head. I think it is, but it's really hard. The darker and thicker your hair is, the better your EEG is because your scalp stays really soft. Oh, yeah. wow. If my, my scalp gets thick and oily because it's out in the air all the time, and that creates layers of insulation. So it's really hard to get EEG on bald people, shockingly. That's Anyways. interesting. <laughs> yeah. So, so after you do about three or four half an hour sessions of the neurofeedback, you start to feel different. And then it's this process of exercising and reporting back what you notice and iterating through the process of change. To make the change, the, to operationally describe what neurofeedback is, let me give you an example. In the case of distractibility, actually, I've already talked about this anterior cingulate. So yes. OCD or perseveration or biting your nails or songs in your head, things in the OCD land, ticks, generally have too much beta happening right there. Mm-hmm. And often the, the alpha, the neutral frequency is a little bit mm-hmm. lower than average. Not always, but usually there's a lot of beta and sometimes not enough alpha. So we can stick a wire there, a couple of ear clips on, and measure what's happening at the front middle of your head, moment to moment. And as your brain changes on its own, we'll wait for it. Whenever the beta happens to relax and the alpha comes up to replace it briefly, we go, yay, good job, brain, by making audio and visual happen on a screen. So you're sitting watching a computer screen and a Pac-Man's eating dots and it stops. And then it resumes and it stops. Or a car is chasing zombies and it slows down and speeds up or a dragon's flying over a lake and it you know, makes more noise and steers faster or veers off the target or something. 
in all cases, we're watching what your brain is doing and only providing some input when the brain is doing something we want it to do more of. And since the mm -hmm. brain likes input over lack of input, it starts to notice, hey, wait a minute, whenever my beta drops, stuff happens. I, I kind of like stuff. And so it starts to lean into that. Mm -hmm. And you don't notice it all that much subjectively. You can't feel the process of training as a voluntary thing. You're kind of like, why is the car stopping and starting? And why is the, it's kind of annoying. But then later on that day or the next day, the brain goes, you know, whenever I drop my beta waves, stuff happened. And it just drops it briefly to sort of reach for that experience. And you feel that. You go, ah, I wait, my, my obsession just dropped away. That was kind of cool. Huh. Or my ADHD or my whatever it is. And little blips of effect will happen. And so every workout, every training session you do, you get about a 24-hour sort of tail of things kind of bubbling and then settling back down. And as the person training, your job is to go, ooh, I like that. Didn't like that as much, like this. And then we can tune the process, the workout, to get more and more of the effects you're looking for and work around other things. Because side effects do happen. We can throw your sleep off or make you more stressed if we don't you know, tailor the techniques to you as we go. So essentially, it's an iterative personal training process. I absolutely love how you've explained it. That's a, it. I've interviewed people before about this and you just have explained the process so incredibly beautifully. There's a few facts that I really love, just want to underline. And that's the autonomy that you bring in and the self-regulation that you're bringing in. And because I found in my research that as we increased awareness and autonomy and self-regulation, that's when we saw the changes happening. You know, so it's that and it's a, it is a process. And then you spoke about how it takes time. You've emphasized that, you know, there's, we in such a quick fix mentality world at the moment that we want things fast. You are getting results immediately, but there is this personalized training that's going on like at the gym. So it's a great example, the way you've aligned it with going to the gym and working with your personal trainer. So there's the individuality and there's the time factor. I've done a lot of work on memory and thought building over time. And, you know, there's this whole thing about habits forming 21 days, which is a complete myth. It takes at least 63 days. And I've shown that now with, with my work as well. You get, you're get you getting your gamma peaks at certain times, but we're seeing at 21 days and the 63, we're seeing the habit formation. And then you speak about how the, it's so interesting how you say that you don't, as you're training a person, they aren't always totally aware of why the car stops or why the dragon does what it does. But that's the non-conscious mind, which is driving. And the non-conscious mind is where the energy is. And it's the biggest part of us where the intelligence is. And it, it, what I found with my, with, with, with the research I was doing was that I developed a, a questionnaire that we validated and all the rest of it. But it, it looks at the person's awareness and autonomy, et cetera, et cetera. And it aligned with the QEEG. So it aligned with the non-conscious. So consciously they were saying, oh no, this or that or the other. But on a non-conscious level and the QEEG, the brain doesn't lie. You said that in other words, we were seeing an alignment between the non-conscious and the QEEG. And then as soon as you become more tuned into that, you started changing. As I'm listening, I'm like seeing more and more inside understanding into, into the work that I've done. And I just love the fact that, you, that you've emphasized that there's work involved and that it's more, because you do a lot about you speak about medication, of how this is so much more effective than medication, which, and that's the, that's the route that, that's, I believe I support that as well. So there's so much more I could say around what you've just said, but you've explained that so beautifully. This episode is brought to you by Public Goods, the one-stop shop for affordable, sustainable, healthy household products. From home and personal care to premium pantry staples, all in one place. Public Goods searches the globe to find clean, healthy, eco-friendly and innovative products like sulfate-free shampoo, hand sanitizer and tree-free paper products. I love how Public Goods makes it easy to shop for all essentials in one place and how beautiful the items are packaged and look. No more ugly soap bottles or containers in my house. 
I also really appreciate how Public Goods makes an effort to source items that are good for me, my family and our planet. Knowing what's in your products and where they come from is important. Small changes in the way we shop can make big impact on our mental and physical health and the world at large. We worked out an exclusive deal just for the Cleaning Up the Mental Mess podcast listeners. Receive $15 off your first public goods order with no minimum purchase. That's right. They are so confident that you will absolutely love their products and come back again and again that they are giving you $15 to spend on your first purchase. You have nothing to lose. Just go to publicgoods.com forward slash Dr. Leaf or use the code Dr. Leaf at checkout. That is P-U-B-L-I-C-G-O-O-D-S dot com forward slash Dr. Leaf to receive $15 off your first order. The link and more details will be in the show notes. Let's transition or pivot to the current modern era because you stressed as well that you're comparing their brain to a set of averages, but there's been a change over time. Just you gave the theta, theta, beta, the theta beta example of ADHD, which was so clear 20 years ago, but now with the changes, we can't see those kind of changes anymore. And also the increase in delta, like some of our subjects in the, in our study, the delta during the, during the day when they were awake was off the scales. It was insane. And the theta with their eyes open, we saw this as well. And they were the ones that weren't sleeping. They weren't getting enough of the non-REM. So we're seeing, but what is interesting is that I don't know if you, you're probably aware of this. Um, South Korea is busy setting up a whole new set of, okay, so you know about that. Yeah, so I'm, ex- yeah, I'm, I'm excited. Government. There's, there's a new database, QEEG De- database coming out of South Korea, which does yes. a lot more granular breakdown. They do the gender-based breakdown, yes. more age-based breakdown. But here's the thing. I, brain mapping, it, the most important thing to understand about QEEG is the average brain you're being compared to is not anything special at all. Exactly. We're not looking, we don't care that you're on average. In fact, we would hope you're on average. No one's average. There's no normal brain. Did you see the study that Yale brought out in 2018? That the, and, that, and the title of the study was, there is no normal brain. There's two variable, one person yeah. to the next, and no one sits in the mean on very many features. So when looking at a brain map, the perspective should not be, why am I not average? That's completely mm. wrong perspective. Mm. And people that don't like QEEG, that think it's a, you know, a tool being used to, to elaborate, they will complain that why are you comparing yourself to average? But that isn't the goal. Mm-mm. People are generally in a bell curve. People are generally the same within a range and have some variability. So all you want to do is use some database that has a normal distribution mm-hmm. and enough sample to approach the same variability as the population. It doesn't matter if the shape of the data is different 20 years ago as it is now. Mm-hmm. If you're using the same reference place and you learn to use it as a yardstick, then you can sort of say, oh, look, your theta is high. Now, in modern world, theta high could be sleep depth or ADHD. Mm-hmm, 30 mm-hmm. years ago, it might have been just ADHD. Mm-hmm. So the clinician has to change their interpretation a little bit. But it doesn't matter to me so much that the, the database I'm using, you know, isn't exactly reflecting, you know, the normal or the natural population amount of range. It's close enough. And this is what we call it a Z-score instead of a standard yeah, deviation, Z-score. right? Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's a standard deviation compared to a particular sample. Not compared to the entire world. You can't exactly the whole world. So it's always going to be imperfect. I pick the database that I find that the metrics within it are especially robust Mm -hmm. across age and I know how to read it. But there's only about six QEEG databases out there in the world, or seven. And they aren't very good. Mm -mm. Jack Johnstone, Joy Lunt, and Jay Gunkelman did a paper in 2005 called Clinical 
or uh, characterization of clinical EEG databases, I think. And it's about QEEG. It's about the state of the field in 2005. Mm -hmm. And they break down all the commercial databases, the sample sizes, and they've all changed quite a bit since then. Mm -hmm. But it's not a very big field. This is a bit of a niche area and there's not a lot of financial you know, pressure pushing development. Mm -mm. And so the software and hardware we, we use often looks like it's from the 80s or 90s. But under the covers, it's quite sophisticated generally. This isn't staying caught up with the same graphics that, you know, the modern games are. But that's a very valid point because I love how you've actually explained that we're not trying to match you to a normal brain because there is a move in the QEG literature and the psychiatric world, as you know, to try and do the neurobiological, biomedical, neuroreductionistic approach and say, well, that is a depressed brain and that is an anxiety brain. And that's very dangerous because it's too limiting. So what we did in our study was obviously there's general board guidelines, like you've said, looking at the Z scores, but we also looked at the individual and I, you've stressed that. It's, so we've done individual case studies. So you are actually measuring against yourself. So there's your baseline and let's move. And the standard deviations concept, which is basically within that bell curve. So people are shifting, but you are your own comparison. You know, exactly. And that, that's much vital. more important to see your own personal change across two maps than it is across, you know, like your first map is interesting. And we go over it with you and say, hey, here's some things that could be true. But the exciting map is often when we do six or eight weeks later, because now yes. you experience a trajectory of change. You know what you've been feeling and how things have been shifting. And then we can sort of look at the changes across the QEG and go, okay, here's some more information. And the, your understanding of your own sort of resources starts to really burgeon over the, the months as you keep looking at your brain too. So, No, that's fantastic. And, and we also found it six to eight weeks later, we found major changes. But what, you, what you're saying that is so good, and I hope people are hearing it, it's the autonomy aspect. It's the self-regulatory aspect. It's the literally going into the brain coach or the gym analogy. And people understand going to gym and, and training up, but they don't understand that your mind, I've tried for 38 years to help people to understand that treat, you've got to treat your mind and brain like you treat your body in a gym and you've got to work at it. And that's what you're doing so beautifully with Peak Brain Institute. You're getting people to do that. So it's, a, it's such a powerful tool. Can we talk a little bit about sleep? I mean, every wellness and the wellness movement as well, because I, I know that that's something that you and I seem to have the same <laughs> philosophy around that there's, it's fantastic, but there's a little bit of woo-woo out there as well. And everyone says sleep, but you must get sleep. And then you can get so, I've written blogs about this and I know you have, you can get so anxious about sleep that the anxiety about not sleeping because of all the things it's doing keeps you awake. And it's actually worse, the fear of not sleeping. It usually is. If someone yeah. has anxiety around sleep, Every single person I've met, the anxiety around not sleeping produces a larger problem over time mm -hmm. than the sleep it does itself. And the sleep onset anxiety usually becomes the major problem, not really the quality of sleep mm. after they are asleep. So sleep is key. You have to sleep. Of course, I, I work in neurofeedback, but I do a lot of coaching around things that are not just you know, high-tech interventions because mm -hmm. it, we all have brains and we all have lives and we all do things to our yeah. brains. I'm of the opinion that the place you should start biohacking, start pushing your performance, is in the things we're all doing every day. We're all eating, we're all mm -hmm. sleeping, mm -hmm. we're all doing other stuff, you know, breathing, mm -hmm. and you should do those things better, especially sleep. And, you know, you should start going after those things before you worry about supplements, before you worry about anything esoteric mm -hmm. or anything magical. Just fix the basic stuff. You'll be shocked mm -hmm. at how powerful it is. So good. Um, and, and most of us don't sleep well. And most of us, don't realize how poorly we sleep. So I think it's kind of useful to get a sleep tracker and watch what's happening. I'm actually, I have a, a little mini experiment going on here. I have six, six of them on my desk here. This is a pretty good one. It's called the Aura Ring. 
This is the Honor 5. It's a workout strap. I've got a whoop strap here, which is... I have too many straps here. <laughs> Anyways, there's several devices. Most of these heart rate variability, heart rate changes to show sleep stage changes at night. And it's relatively accurate. The best in class ones, the Aura Ring and the Whoop. The Bio Strap's pretty good. The Honor 5's okay. There's a bunch of them. The Fitbits are pretty good. A couple things on sleep tracking... They're not going to be good at measuring REM and so ignore the REM numbers. Everyone's concerned about REM, but here's the mm-hmm. thing. You can't not get REM. Mm-hmm. can't. Mm-hmm. If you don't dream, you go crazy. Within a few- I love it. I love the way you explain that. You're going to see the walls melting. <laughs> People don't think they have REM. People don't think they're dreaming because they're not getting- Forget their dreams, yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So we get into deep sleep, slow wave or delta sleep. First chunk of it happens about 90 to 100 minutes after we fall asleep at the beginning of the night. If you're 35 or above, the only growth hormone you get happens right then. Mm-hmm. You know, at the end of your first cycle of big cycle of sleep, and then it drags you down into delta with a pulse of growth hormone. And that delta pulse consolidates memories, you know, moves, moves short term into long term. So if you're making those delta pulses and that big growth hormone pulse, then you can remember the dreams you're having. If you don't make delta waves, then you kind of skim the surface of sleep all night long and forget the dreams you're having and think you didn't have any dreams. But if you don't have dreams for a few nights, you will go psychotic. It's very, very reliable effect. So people are often very concerned that their sleep trackers, oh, I didn't have any REM last night. Don't, don't worry about that. It's not, it's like measuring, uh, yeah, it's like measuring uh, LDL and blood. They don't measure it. They estimate it indirectly six steps away. So the same thing is true of REM. Deep sleep and total sleep are the things to watch. Mm-hmm. Your deep sleep will fluctuate day to day aggressively based on what you do to yourself. And that mm-hmm. is amenable to manipulation. And of course, total sleep. So most people are getting way, way less deep sleep than they realize. And if you can hack this a little bit, it can change your life rapidly within a few days sometimes. So let me give you the three big Cadian regulation hacks to keep your sleep and trained. And women have to pay a little more attention to the first one. The first one's the most important one anyways, but women, it's even more important for you guys because the most important rule for circadian training is not to eat before bed. That growth hormone pulse that happens 90 minutes into sleep only happens if there's no insulin in your bloodstream. So if you eat three to four hours before bed, three hours before bed and go to sleep, you suppress growth hormone. If you're north of 35, you basically skim the surface of sleep all night long, wake up tired. Mm-hmm. So fast before bed. How many hours? At least three, maybe four. Okay. The rule of thumb is if you go to bed hungry, you wake up full of energy and refreshed. If you go to bed full, you'll wake up hungry and tired. Mm-hmm. It's, it's counterintuitive. And women have a shorter circadian rhythm than men do by about an hour. And so anything that women do at the end of the circadian rhythm is going to be more likely to push the time. So women have to be more, sen- more careful about not eating late in the day than men do by about mm-hmm. an hour. So first rule, don't eat at night. Okay. Second rule, get up at the same time seven days a week, roughly. No sleeping in like an hour or two here and there. It will throw you off for weeks sometimes, people that are, that are poorly entrained. And then the third rule is get some exercise in in the morning before you eat a few days a week. So again, don't eat before bed, consistent wake time, and exercise before you eat. Ride that appetite suppression even an hour or two in the morning where you aren't hungry. If your insulin is healthy, it's gotten so suppressed and grain gets suppressed when you first wake up because cortisol rises, it wakes you up, yeah. it suppresses hunger. You should ride that for an hour or two, be productive, meditate, exercise, and then eat. 
So a lot of people in this biohacking and wellness world will do the fasting thing and they'll skip breakfast and they'll eat it like from like noon to 8 p.m. or something and mm-hmm. go to bed at like 10. Mm-hmm. That's completely the wrong thing to do. You should be mm-hmm. having your fast. The bulk of your fasting hours should be before your sleep, not after you wake up. So if you're going to do fasting, you should start eating mid-morning and stop eating mid-afternoon. Mm, so we should all kind of cut off eating by around about 6, six kind of or 6. Depending when you go to bed, or 2 p.m. Humans are probably built to have food from like, you know, 8, 9, 10 in the morning until mid-afternoon and then not at all and stop. So even as early as sort of four or five in the afternoon. So that's for people. A lot of people are eating their dinners around seven, eight at night, which is the worst time to eat because it's just not enough time for, unless you're going to bed at 11, 12 at night, but then it's also another. Yeah. And, and just think about how much time you're giving your body to clear insulin after your last meal. You know, if your last meal is at 5 p.m. and your next meal is going to be at, you know, 10 a.m. or something, you know, that's only 17 hours. But if you pushed it and you ate from, you know, noon to 8 p.m. or something. Well, now it's only 8 p.m. to noon. You know, it's, it's less time and you're awake for some of that time, you know, or sorry, you're, you're asleep for a lot of time now. So you're asleep while you're digesting food. So it's, yeah. it's much, much less time spent in that insulin clearing mode mm. if you eat later in the day. And so you'll never move into an autophagy mode where you're doing immune recovery and getting rid of old bad cells in your system. Mm-hmm. The body can be in kind of a building mode or an autophagy, an eating mode where mm-hmm. it cleans things up. You can't do both at once. You can't mm. build and... Clean at the same time. So you build for certain hours and then you clean. So the ideal is to have about 17 to 20 hours between the last meal and the next meal in the, in, in the nighttime so that your body, as it does the, the autophagy... Yep. And I, I think we're built for that. And, and, you know, modern life, we eat three meals a day and we have lots of starch and sugar. And evolutionarily, we never had access to this no. much food and to this much free calories, like, sh- like starches mm-hmm. and things. So I really do think humans should not be eating every day. I don't think humans should be eating all day long. Yeah, I agree. Um, with you. I also think that the, you know, energy system is a regulatory system that, that learns. And if you ate lots of junk growing up, your body has learned to regulate one direction and you may have to teach yourself. You can't just start fasting or start intermittent fasting or start, you know, you have to learn to do this stuff. Yeah. Your body over several Mm -hmm. cycles of it, it can change. Even people that are acutely, you know, type two diabetic, you know, insulin dependent, all kinds of stuff, three day fast, no pancreatic insulin production, zero three day fast start producing insulin in the pancreas with no beta islet cells before that. It mm. causes non-beta islet cells to retro-differentiate in, and then re-differentiate into insulin-producing cells in the pancreas in three days of fasting. So now, are we doing it, that? No. But this I was just going to say, yeah, so, that's, so people that have got diabetes, that is a way of actually managing it. It is. And, there are, and there's several, I mean, this is very dangerous because if you're diabetic, yeah. but you can educate the body, you know, the, the hormesis, the mild stressors, eustress, that cause the yes. body to cause healing things happening. Not eating is about the easiest thing you can do to cause pro-healthy things to kick off inside your body. As you may know, every year I host an end-of-the-year mental health summit. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, I'm excited to announce we will be making this a virtual summit December 3rd through 6th. 
So, if you've always wanted to attend but couldn't due to flights or other commitments, now is the time. In this summit, you will learn simple, practical and scientific strategies to help you clean up your mental mess and live your healthiest and happiest life. This summit will also include guest speakers such as Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Will Cole, Dr. Nicola Perra, Dr. Henry Cloud and celebrity Michelle Williams from Destiny's Child. We will have sessions on how to overcome trauma, what to eat and do for optimal brain health, how to deal with toxic words and people, how to set boundaries, how to use my five steps to detox your brain and so much more. We will also be offering CMEs and CEUs. Registration is now open and we are offering a special early bird discount just till October 15. Your registration includes access to all sessions, discounts on online products, recordings of all sessions after the event and special downloads and workbooks. Register now at drleafconference.com. The link and more details will be in the show notes. So would you recommend if someone's listening to this and they've got diabetes, would you recommend they do this under the medical... Yes. Yeah. yeah. If you have a blood sugar issue, do this with your blood sugar practitioner, you know, whoever. And Make sure that you're working with someone. Mm-hmm. And, and get a CGM, continuous glucose monitor, and watch it because mm-hmm. you don't want to end up having trouble, you know. Being yeah. Trouble. Because but the, this, if I have a blood sugar crash, not a big deal. But if you if somebody is diabetic, has a blood sugar spike, it could be very, very dangerous. Yeah. So it has to be monitored. So don't go and do this without under medical supervision. But it's a incredible, there's so many natural thing biohacks we can do that are actually, we're not doing. We're going straight to the medication and straight to the, you know, the quick fix mentality, but we've got to actually retrain our bodies. You know, you talk about uh, just one of the things that, that just coming back to the, the Delta Theta, one of the things I noticed with my research is that as people developed insight into their issues and really started tapping into the subconscious and the unconscious, the theta increased. And it's often called as the healing wave and the alpha bridge also increased. And I found that interesting because that just in, in relation to as awareness increased, those patterns changed. And in the, in, in the past, that would have been looked seen as a problem, except the alpha bridge alpha rising and theta rising would have been okay. So it's just interesting how we've got to make sure we measure. I don't. I wanted to ask you about that, if you've seen that too, if you see that the increase in the theta, it's often been called that that spiritual experience. And if you see big rises in alpha data, it's their spiritual healers and people that are get lost in a painting or, yep. you know, that kind of- You can of also just create that effect voluntarily with neurofeedback right away. Uh-huh. And neurofeedback creates a hypnogogic crossover state okay. Okay. in a few minutes. So most of us have had the experience of falling asleep and like solving world hunger or coming up with the best business idea or yeah. Ooh, I have to remember this thing. As you fall asleep, stuff bubbles up. That receptive attention mode is a high theta state. You don't want to be stuck in that mode because you notice everything. It's your yes. But theta is four to seven hertz. Memory access, receptive creative memory access is six and a half. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's the very top edge of that. So you can train the brain to create alpha and theta surges, then cause this discontinuous hypnogogic, juicy internal flow state, alpha and theta crossover, it's called. It's really quite straightforward in, to do with neurofeedback. And this entire neurofeedback programs, 40 years of Zen, BioCyberLots, all they do is alpha, theta, and alpha coherence. And yeah. You can reliably produce not only the state briefly, but produce changes in people's access to their creativity. Mm-hmm. There was a study out of, I forget which, which college it was in London, the big performing arts school, it might have been university college. And they ran the performance class, half of them through neurofeedback. The end of the year, those that had received neurofeedback scored a full grade level above the other wow. ones on their wow. final project. And they controlled for stage fright in the experiment. 
So it wasn't comfort in performance. It was mm. something. It was, it was the creativity in the composition that was affected. And I've done a lot of work with musicians, and they all say after doing alpha theta that they're interacting with their internal environment in a very different way. They're they're using their musician instrument almost as an extension of themselves. They're speaking through their music. They're thinking about it anymore. Or even when they're turning pages on a pianist, you know, professional concert pianist, he's visualizing what he has to play instead of looking at it now. So alpha theta, that creative, burgeoning, juicy mm, yeah. awareness is pretty powerful in the neurofeedback world. And it also, within a few sessions, the shaky, nervous, burnt at alcoholics that can't settle down and can't fall yeah, asleep. Yeah. Within a couple of weeks of training, they can turn their mind off and fall asleep without a drink whenever they want. Mm. You know, it's it's really really obvious fact in the literature and also clinically. Yeah, so. yeah. No, I agree with you. I've seen this. I've seen similar things as well with the with the research I've done, and it's it's just it's so hopeful, isn't it? It's so because there's such a hopeless message out there. There's this broken brain message that you know, and that depression and anxiety are these it's that have got you, and it's you know this default. But, but your brain is only doing what your mind is telling it to do. The choices that you are making, as you've been saying, you know what you you can learn to control this. So it's a tremendously hopeful message, and here you've got. Neurofeedback and the QEG to give us the visual evidence of when we do choose to have this level of autonomy and self-regulation, which is so vital. You're doing it through this brilliant technique, and I'm doing a similar thing through mind work. And you put the two together, you've got a very powerful medium. And you do a lot of meditation as well, which is so important, and mindfulness meditation. Do you want to speak a little bit about that? Sure. So we view meditation or mindfulness essentially as sort of hand in glove with the neurofeedback, such that. It's kind of like you're an athlete and the neurofeedback is the coach in the gym making you bang out one more rep, you know, strength and conditioning coach. But the mindfulness yeah. is, is the technique coach in the field helping you lift your elbow better or learn to use the resources mm. you've built. So we think we don't provide therapy. We're not a therapy shop. So, to speak. Yes. so for those people that want to do more nuanced investigation of the internal environment and don't need you know, deep therapy, we provide mindfulness and we have free classes online and in our centers. And we also give all of our neurofeedback clients private mindfulness instruction once a month if they want to take advantage of it. So it's amazing. We teach people to meditate basically, mostly because nobody seems to know what meditation is. They all think it's, you know, blanking your mind, which it's not. And there's so many resources out there. So it's quite strange that people don't know because there's endless resources. Yeah. So so you know a lot of the again it's lots of education, teaching people they have some tools to take control of the physiology they're carrying around. Most of what we do. I'm so glad that we, we brought that up because that's part of the protocol that I've developed too is that you have to prepare before you do the work and the mindfulness meditation is, is a vital component of that and it does set your brain and prepare your brain for that process. So you've mentioned things like heart rate variability, biofeedback, mindfulness meditation, helping with alcohol recovery, stress, anxiety, mood. I mean, this is a lot of stuff and I know that you've briefly, you know, you've kind of touched on all of them. Can you just give sort of a, a summary of the kinds of things that you're working with? I know in your on your webpage, you do indicate... You you work on mood and anxiety and depression. And so maybe let's just take as a little summary each one. You just spent, like you gave quite good examples about the, the high beta in the cigulate area for OCD. Can we maybe just break it down just simplistically into how neurofeedback would help with anxiety, with depression, with sure. all, the, all, the, I mean, all the hot buttons? It's all very nuanced, right? And every, every individual is a combination of goals and resources and things. But I will Wonderful. say that about yeah. a third of the people that walk in are some of the people with the most acute needs in the world. Major brain injuries, major autism, cerebral palsy, concussions, major head injuries, drownings, 
you know, chemical exposures, severe wow. brain things, migraines, seizures, you know. In your, in your clinic. So that's a major thing that, okay, so that's really. About a third of my clients. Wow. Okay. Let's about talk about that. A third are peak performers, fitness model, athlete, CEO types, you know, and my, my buddy, Ben Greenfield. Mm-hmm. Sort of like, you know, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I joke he's a fitness model more than he is an athlete, but that's just my joke <laughs> for him. But it's yeah. this kind of high, hard charging, high performing you know, person who's usually squeezing every little bit of life out of their job, their family, their creative pursuits, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. A third of my clients are the super high-end peak performer. Okay. And a third is everyone else with some sleep, some stress, might yeah. drink too much, you know, maybe not creative enough, maybe yell at their kids, maybe some alcohol yeah. issues, who knows? Some anxiety, some trauma history, some wear and tear. Because here's the thing, even the peak performers that walk in with nothing wrong. They've got concussions and some anxiety yeah. and some sluggish processing and lousy sleep. I mean, everyone has lots of stuff. Yeah. You know? Everyone. Mm-hmm. So I do work with acute stuff, but it's sort of like if you walk in with a brain, we will help you tease apart the things you might want to work on and listen carefully to what you say and go after resources until they move. That's beautiful. So it's very individualized. That's what you're saying. It's it's very individualized and there's no cookie cutter thing. And that's why I asked you that question because I want people, because we've been taught in the narrative of today that there is, it's a cookie cutter thing. You have those symptoms, you have that diagnosis, you have that treatment. And if you don't, if it doesn't work, there's something even more wrong with you. What you're saying, what I'm saying is that no, you're an individual case study and you have your own unique set of issues and we can help you navigate and understand. And this is a brilliant technique for that. And we're often abandoning the diagnostic language. We're often like, oh, you have Good. a diagnosis. Ah, okay, let's see what that actually means. Are yeah, you beautiful. Are you attentive? Are you anxious? Love that. You know, a lot of therapists, clinicians send their clients to me to tease apart in the brain what's happening. I'm not making good result with this, you know, teenager. Yeah. Is he really anxious or is it ADHD or vice versa? What's going on here with this kid? I can't, you know, let's look. And you can, you can learn from looking at your brain. Some of you can look at, look at your body fat or your cholesterol or your triglycerides. So again, agency and access and taking control is the is the watch right here. I love that. I love that that you've dumped the label concept because that's vitally important. Too many, you know, the labels have locked us in, and we've I, don't, I won't even use you know we use those labels as a, as a form of communication, but it's actually not the answer to lock people into a label because they all comorbid anyway. And I always tell people that depression, anxiety, ADHD, anyway, those are just big words. As you, what is actually coming underneath it? It's not. There's all the root causes. So I, I love how you do that. How can people find out more about you, and where can they? find you sure so i think all of our socials i'm andrew hill phd and my company peak brain is i think peak brain la mostly because when we first had socials we were only in los angeles but now we're in la we're in orange county we're in st louis we're in london we have a qeg station in copenhagen expanding more than half of my clients train themselves from home that's fantastic. So I, I, you sound like you're South African. Where are you from? Yes, I'm from South Africa, oh, but yeah, I live right. in the States, yeah. <laughs> I wasn't sure where you, where you were. I have clients yeah. in South Africa, in Australia, in all over the world. So we send people brain mapping equipment now, and they do it themselves, us on the, running at the back end, and they do all the neurofeedback at home. So you don't have to be near one of our centers to work with us. That's amazing. Half of a brain. That is amazing. That's incredible. That makes it so much easier for people to access everything. And this is wonderful. It's been absolutely amazing. I've really enjoyed this. And we'll put all the details in the show notes. And I would love to invite you back again to dive into a few more things. Because today was like an overview of the concept, but we could really go deep into a lot of things. So thank maybe you maybe so you much. Your brain and show your listeners your brain if you want. That would be such, that would be great. I would love that. We definitely should do that. And I can show people what who they're listening to. <laughs> That would be amazing. Thank you so much, Dr. Hill. It's been incredible. 
So enjoyed it. Thank you. Great talking to you. My pleasure. I hope you found today's podcast interesting and helpful. If you want more tips and help with managing anxiety, depression, and mental health, be sure to visit my website at drleaf.com and to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I also include a schedule of my speaking events and so much more. And follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just look for Dr. Caroline Leaf. Also, I love seeing all your posts on social media about this podcast. I love seeing what resonates with you and what you've learned. So be sure to continue posting and tagging me and letting me know what you think and how these tips worked out for you. And don't forget, leave a review and keep spreading the word about this podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I really hope you learned something new and helpful. Till then, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf. This podcast represents the opinions of myself and my guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for educational and informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any individual medical questions you may have. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions or corrections of errors.